Take your Bibles for the last time with me in this series and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the last message in our series through 1 Peter. Uh, Just for your interest, next week we will have a missionary with us, uh, Daniel Mee. He's been with us in the past. It's been several years. He'll be speaking in our morning service. Um, I'll actually focus, since it seems like in God's providence, we're to be focusing on gospel advance. Um, The next two Sundays in September, I'll focus on missions and gospel advance. And then the last Sunday of the month, we'll actually have two missionaries with us there in September, September 25th, I believe that is. Then the next series we'll go to starting in October will be in the book of Titus, the book of Titus. Um, I have talked to several who are interested in seeing us return to the book of 2 Samuel. So again, farther down the road, that's where we're headed as well. So just to give you a roadmap of what we're thinking as we consider God's word together. This week as I was listening to a sports talk podcast, the subject of Mike Tyson came up. Now, they were talking about his boxing career and what made him such a dominant fighter. Now, for some of you, you may only know of this man as a B-level Hollywood sideshow. But he was the most intimidating and dominant fighter in the world for many years in the mid to late 90s. At one point, his nickname was the baddest man on the planet. What made him so dominant as a boxer was not just that he was a devastating, powerful puncher, often knocking his opponents out, but it really became his mystique, his reputation, his ability to do those things. According to the commentator I was listening to, his image had been carefully crafted to highlight that power, that ability. And often he said his greatest weapon was that intimidation. Many times at the height of his career, the fight was over before it began. His opponents were afraid of him and you could see it in their face. He'd already won the fight before it began. Even his choice of dress, his walk in music was very simple and meant to intimidate. Intimidation is a powerful weapon. It's a weapon the enemy uses against God's people. Remember how Satan used intimidation, fear, and the threat of suffering in Peter's own heart when he was asked directly if he was a companion of Jesus. It would have been social suicide in his mind to have admitted in that moment to being his friend. As he's standing around that fire and they're saying to him, first a little girl and then others, aren't you one of his friends? Aren't you one of his disciples? Peter knew what it was to fail when the tempter threw opposition and potential suffering into his path. He had failed in that moment. He gave in to the fear, the intimidation that the tempter placed before him. He had not been alert to those dangers, even though Jesus himself had told him that Satan desired to sift him as wheat. In our text this morning, we learn that God calls his people to stand firm in his grace, 
confident of future glory in Christ. Let's look at our text together. We'll begin reading in verse number eight. This is the word of our God. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, or that is Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that is the church at Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's ask for God's help as we consider the text together this morning. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law this morning. We would see Jesus. We need to see him. Our encouragement comes from knowing him. From knowing the father that he reveals to us. So we pray that the spirit would open our eyes. That we would hear. That we would obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning and all that Peter's going to encourage us to do is controlled by that one command given in verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Suffering is a part of the Christian's life, Peter's been telling us. But believers are to stand firm. They're to endure in the plentiful grace that God provides through Jesus. We find strength to continue on by fixing our minds on a certain future. One through Christ's suffering and his subsequent glorification. Now this morning as we examine the text, we'll see that Peter first urges us to persistent vigilance in verses 8 and 9. Then he encourages us by reminding us of future vindication. We will win. In verses 10 and 11, and he concludes his letter. As he does so, he bases each of his commands in God's stabilizing grace in verses 12 through 14. So first, persistent vigilance. Peter continues to give these final pastoral exhortations as we wind down, as we come to the end of the book. These are important. These are the last things he says to these embattled believers. And really we're hearing a lot of echoes of what he said previously. There's a lot of bookending going on in this letter. He commands be sober or self-controlled. Be watchful or alert. He's saying pay attention to the very real dangers all around you. Just because we know that God is almighty, as we saw last week in the previous text, that he's all-powerful, that he cares for us, does not mean that we go through life then passively, that we let our guard down, that we have no responsibility to walk and follow him and discipline our lives to godliness. 
Peter's saying we have responsibility to walk through the Christian life a certain way. And this is the third time that Peter has referred to being sober-minded in this letter. In 1.13 he writes, we heard it read, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Understand your position in Christ and fix your gaze there. Again, in chapter 4, verse 7, he writes, The end of all things is near. He has a very eternal mindset. It's very real to him. That's convicting, isn't it? When we think of how temporally minded we are. All throughout this letter, Peter continues to come back to Christ is coming again. Your salvation will be realized. Live in light of that. He writes, therefore, because the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So do you see the mindset that Peter's commanding us to embrace? Because of the pressure believers face, we are to be on guard against apathy. We're not to give in to those pressures. It's not to silence us. It's not to make us run away in fear. It's not to make us conform. We're not to become intoxicated with the fleeting pleasures and priorities of this life as if they eternally matter. In what ways have your spiritual senses become dulled to the dangers of preoccupying your time with temporal, even meaningless things. What's your mindset? Are you setting your mind, your gaze, your priorities on the hope that's to be revealed? Here in chapter 5, verse 8, he urges us to careful attention now because we have a powerful adversary. The believer's adversary is real and dangerous and he employs this picture of a lion. The picture of a lion functions in the Bible in several ways. Often it's used of danger, of an enemy. But it is used at times of Jesus Christ himself, the lion of Judah. But here Peter uses it to describe to us the danger of our enemy. Think of Psalm 22, 13. Where the psalmist writes, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. That's what Peter is feeling and describing Satan as to us. He points out that this lion roars. This is an intention-grabbing description since the roar of the lion is one of the most frightening and intimidating sounds we can imagine. A lion's roar can be heard over five miles away. One source said it is comparable to being nearby when a jet takes off. The volume reaches the pain threshold for humans. A wildlife filmmaker stated that if you are nearby when a lion roars, you don't just hear it, you feel it internally. It's that powerful. Now, two opposing dangers present themselves to Christians when they consider the devil's power in their lives. First, it it is to be uh, 
avoided when we're dangerously overly preoccupied or impressed with his power. Sometimes we can hear people that overemphasize his ability or his power. He is a created being with very clear limits. There's only one of him. He is not everywhere present. He is not all-powerful. We know from the book of Job that he is completely under the authority and command of God himself. He must come when he is called. Michael the archangel is considered his equal. They're both angels. He can only tempt us to follow our own sinful hearts. He can never force a believer to act against his own will. And yet, he is the schemer, the deceiver, the tempter, our adversary. The second danger is to ignore him or minimize the danger that he and his followers pose in our lives. He is extremely cunning. He is extremely experienced. He knows which traps we are most likely to fall for. He's had a lot of practice at it. He knew exactly what temptation to throw in Peter's path to trip him up. And we see here that Satan can cause human opposition or suffering in a believer's life if God allows that. We see that in the life of Job. He's allowed to inflict pain and loss and hurt into Job's life. We see it in the life of Peter. We will see it again in the future. Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Finally, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 of his own temptations. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul was given a window into a world that no other human being was given. He could have been puffed up by this. And he's saying to avoid that, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me or torment me. And he says again the reason to keep me from becoming conceited. So just think about what Paul is saying. God allows this messenger of Satan to torment Paul in order to accomplish his own purposes. No wonder Satan roars in anger. Even his schemes turn out to work God's purposes. So Satan can use suffering in the lives of Christians to tempt them to doubt God's goodness, to tempt them to doubt God's love for them, even convincing some that it's not worth following Christ at all. Suffering can either lead us closer to God or it can convince us to run away from him. Now the opposite of spiritual alertness and watchfulness is spiritual drowsiness. And what past experience do you imagine comes into Peter's mind as he's saying be watchful, be alert be sober minded 
In the garden, Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray. Matthew 26, 40 and 41. And Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And then he zeroes in on Peter. And Jesus said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Remember, he told him at the Last Supper, Satan wanted to sift him as wheat. Within hours of this command to watch and pray, Peter would famously fall prey to his greatest temptation. Spiritual vigilance is required of all believers. So how do we stay alert? In verse 9, Peter commands us to resist him. It's an active word. It's used in 2 Timothy to describe opposition, hostility that both Moses and Paul faced in their lives, in their ministries. It's an active resistance. We're to actively engage ourselves against the devil and his schemes. Believers will not triumph over the devil, over suffering, over temptation if they remain passive. The next phrase goes on to clarify we're to stand firm in our faith. Stand firm in Jesus Christ who Peter's been exalting all throughout this letter. How do we resist and stay alert? Peter doesn't answer that directly here in this text, does he? But we know from the context what he's been saying, what he would have us to do. We fix our eyes on Jesus. This isn't a call to unusual spiritual feats or activities. This isn't to pray the devil away or, or call him out or tell him to go away. Peter's urging us to utilize the ordinary means of grace for standing firm. We cast our cares on him in prayer. He's just told us. As we'll see in verse 12 and have seen throughout the letter, we meditate on the word of God which reveals Christ to us. We see him as better. And we seek strength in numbers alongside fellow believers. We see that in this text as well, don't we? One author summarizes believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust God, believing that he truly cares for them and will sustain them until the end. Perseverance until the last day is accomplished from first to last by faith. Do you know how Mike Tyson, that dominant heavyweight champion of the world who won so many fights just by his intimidation factor, Do you know how he started to lose? His opponents started to figure out that if you could overcome your own fear and refuse to be intimidated and made him actually fight for several rounds, then you had a chance to beat him. If you weren't overcome early and you played good defensive boxing strategy, you could win. They refused, they had to refuse to back down. And once one fighter beat him, others had the blueprint and he lost again and again and again. We have the blueprint for how to defeat our enemy. We don't resist him in our own strength, but through God's grace, knowing that Christ has already finally defeated him. Do you see the encouragement that Peter's giving them? In spite of all the hostility and pressure, hang on. The victory's already won. 
Christ has already done everything you need for you to endure. So hang on to him. Notice then how Peter encourages us in the second phrase of verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, Satan tempts us in his roaring to believe that our suffering is unique. It's a pain that only we know. It tempts us to be self-centered, self-righteous, self-consumed. But Christians face opposition to their faith everywhere. We're not alone. It's actually the distinct mark of the Christian family. This encourages us that other believers are enduring through the pressure by faith and we can as well. There's strength in numbers. Thomas Schreiner writes, persecution is the roar by which the devil tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will give in or give up at the prospect of suffering. None of us naturally want that. If believers deny their faith, then the devil has devoured them. The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if believers do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. In the pilgrim's progress, as Christian goes on his journey near the top of the hill of difficulty, Christian meets two weak pilgrims named Mistrust and Timid who tell him of the great lions at the palace beautiful. That's where he's going for rest, for equipment. As he approaches the palace from a distance, it looks like the lions are blocking his path. It seems there's no way around them. Yet Christian frightfully avoids the lions by the counsel of Watchful, the porter on the wall of the palace, who tells these disciples, Christian, mistrust, and timid, that the lions are chained. And if they just stay in the middle of the path, if they just follow God's word is what's being illustrated, they will pass safely by. Watchful, the porter tells them the lions have been put there to test the faith of pilgrims. Will they follow when life becomes filled with pressures? A hymn we often sing says, I run to Christ when worn by life and find my soul refreshed. Come unto me, he calls through strife, fatigue gives way to rest. I run to Christ when vexed by hell and find a mighty arm. The devil flees, the scriptures tell. He roars but cannot harm. Our second point we see in verses 10 and 11, future vindication. Now there's a change here in these two verses that we should take careful note of. Who's the subject of the commands in verses 8 and 9? Go ahead and look back at the text. Who is the subject of the commands? It's an understood plural, you, you be sober-minded, you be watchful, you resist him. It's believers. In verses 8 and 9, Peter is explaining our responsibility in standing firm in God's grace. And yet comfort comes in verses 10 and 11. Because if you're like me, you know you often cannot do that. You're unfaithful. You do lose sight of our king. 
So in verses 10 and 11, the subject changes. Now who is it? It's the God of all grace. Sufficient grace. And what is God doing? How is he acting? Peter tells us he's finishing his work in us. He called us to eternal life. As we saw all the way back in chapter 1 verse 3. He initiated this relationship. He brought us to life when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And now Peter's reminding us of God's faithfulness to complete his work. He will do it. Peter encourages us that though we are suffering, it is only short-lived. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. That means even if we suffer for most of our lives, in comparison with eternity, that's a very, very, very small amount of time. Our God has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. He brought us to life spiritually and he will complete that work. Our hope is secure, not because we're able to hold on to him, but because he's holding us. God will finish what he started. Peter says he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean, stands the Tower of Constance. It's a prison, a famous prison. There, in the 18th century, Huguenot women were imprisoned for decades at a time because they refused to surrender their faith. In the tower room where they were held captive, a a coping surrounds an open floor. Marie Durand entered that room in 1729 when she was 15 years old. Three years later, her brother Pierre, a preacher of the gospel, was hanged as a martyr. In 1745, after 16 years of imprisonment, she was offered her freedom if she would agree to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. It's recorded that she was asked this every day. Will you renounce your faith in Christ alone? And daily she refused. She remained a captive a total of 38 years. Resisting temptation to despair, to suicide, to betrayal. In fact, from her imprisonment, she began a ministry of encouragement by correspondence. Some of her letters survive even to this day. 38 years. That's certainly a long time, isn't it? We don't ever want to belittle the suffering of fellow believers and yet in the light of glory to be enjoyed in the presence of our Savior for all eternity, this is but a light momentary affliction. John Piper states that woven through this entire letter is the call for a condition of heart and a way of life that makes sense only if we are absolutely sure that we will have a great reward in heaven. That's the key, isn't it? Having having an eternal mindset, believing that what we experience here in this life now is not all there is and it doesn't ultimately matter. It's not the most important thing. It's to live by faith, not by sight. All wrongs against the Christian will be set right on that day. 
All patience under mockery will be vindicated. All shame in this world will be taken away and replaced with honor. All pain will be removed and all losses restored. In this letter, God calls us to a kind of heart and a kind of life that makes no sense. It makes no sense in this world. Joyful, humble willingness to suffer wrong and serve rather than return evil for evil, makes sense only if we are sustained by the hope of glory. Do you believe your future inheritance is sure? How is that affecting the way you live day by day? That's the question Peter would have us ask. One writer notes of the four verbs we see in verse 11 that there's no need to distinguish specifically the meanings of each verb because they're meant to function together as a unit. A unit that emphatically states that God himself holds us fast. He himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He will fulfill his promise. He has more than enough strength to hold you through the hardships of your life. Remember how he restores Peter. How he establishes him to be a help to other believers. Even after he gives in to the temptations of the deceiver. The psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. That's what Peter wants to give us here at the conclusion of the book. Know who your God is. Look to him. He is a refuge and our strength. Our very present help in times of trouble. The Lord himself is your shepherd. He provides sustaining grace that encourages us again and again. And now notice Peter bursts forth into praise of God's glory in verse 11. The God who allows suffering into the lives of his children, even allowing the devil to roar and rage at us, is the sovereign almighty God of the universe who tenderly cares for each and every one of his own children. All glory for completing this plan goes to him. It's accomplished in his strength, so he gets the credit. He stretches forth his mighty hand to protect his people So as Peter brings his letter to a conclusion, these are the truths he wants to have ringing in our ears as we close the pages on this letter. Your God reigns. Cling to him. Thirdly, we see stabilizing grace offered. Peter writes in verse 12, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now in verse 12, what does the word this refer to? The best answer is that it refers to the entire message of the letter. How would you summarize Peter's message in this book? After months of spending time looking at this letter, how would you summarize it in your own mind? It may be important for you to be able to do that, to recognize what you've learned To kind of cement it into your mind. Maybe that's a a task you could do this afternoon. How would we summarize the message? We see it right at the beginning of the letter. God's grace has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. 
who willingly submitted to unjust authorities and suffered even death on the cross. That suffering fit perfectly within God's plan to glorify his son. First suffering and then glory. That's the path. That's the roadmap. Peter calls all believers to walk that path, knowing that our future is certain. Our hope in Jesus Christ is solid. As his elect exiles were called to faithfully follow in his footsteps in a difficult and hostile world, choosing to bless, to do good works, instead of return reviling with reviling. Now, as Peter writes the final sentences of this letter, he includes several fellow servants of Christ. Silvanus or Silas is a faithful brother who will deliver this letter to these churches. We're intended to see the family relationships present for our spiritual health in all these mentions of fellow believers that are doing this work of ministry. They're receiving spiritual encouragement These churches, through the faithful ministry of Silas, from the pen of Peter, the church at Rome, she who is at Babylon, and Mark sends greetings. Now, I'm not exactly sure why Peter describes the church as she who is at Babylon. That seems a little bit strange to our ears. But there are some very fitting connections to the themes that he's woven throughout this letter. And my thought is that's why he uses this name. Israel spent many years as elect exiles in Babylon, which was the center of the unbelieving world at that time. Rome is now that in Peter's day. The church is the new people of God, and they endure and even thrive under persecution from the very center of the world's power. So if they can thrive and endure, so can you, is what Peter's saying. Finally, we're commanded to greet one another with the kiss of love. Certainly, we understand this to be a customary greeting in that time and place. A kiss was given or cheeks were touched from male to male, female to female in the first century to those with whom you were close. We could compare this to the way that we greet our own loved ones and family. The love between God's people should be evident in our conversations here in this building and elsewhere and in our greetings. How can we obey this command? Our practice has to be rooted in real relationships. Real relationships. You know, isn't it awkward, unhelpful, if a stranger comes up and hugs you? Don't you feel like, wait a second, we're not close enough for that to happen, right? We need genuine, deepening relationships, and we must take time to form them if we are going to obey this command. So the way that we think about coming, entering even into a gathering like this, should be affected by a verse like this. We're not coming primarily to find acceptance and love from other believers. We come to give it. As the entire church embraces this Christ-like mindset, this outward-facing love, then we certainly will receive care and encouragement. But notice that the command is for us to demonstrate love, to give it out, rather than being unfocused on what we do or don't receive from others. If you're feeling disconnected, here's how Peter would encourage you. Get busy encouraging others. Here's the point we can take from this last section. You and I need other believers to help us stand firm. 
Even this idea of greeting one another with love is connected to what it means to stand firm. Paul was constantly surrounding himself with other believers in whose lives he can invest and who could also help strengthen him. Peter, likewise, is investing in other believers, in other churches, in other brothers in ministry in order to help them stand firm in God's grace. So even the great apostles, Peter and Paul, never wanted to be alone. They needed loving Christian relationships being developed all throughout their lives. And that's part of the way they were so effective. Our Western spirit of independence minimizes in our needs the need for community. All of the uh, global events that have been happening over the past two years have minimized in our minds our need for community. It's directly attacked this biblical principle. Other people are a danger to you. That's not New Testament. And yes, while there's, I'm not making commentary on how we act in a pandemic, I'm saying the New Testament says you need to pursue other believers. God's word demonstrates, encourages, and even commands us to care for each other, to speak truth to each other, to pray for and with one another. Don't believe you can face a hostile world and an intimidating enemy without the help of God's people. It is foolish and unnecessary. New Testament church ministry is not the building up of programs. It's the building up of people. Is that what you're invested in here in our church? So many are and we're seeing health develop all around that. As God's people sit around God's word together, as they pray together, as they fellowship weekly with one another. So how might the Spirit be encouraging you to renew your efforts to serve and encourage a fellow believer here in this church? Grace and peace bracket the message of this letter. Peter begins and ends his letter with it. He says at the end of 1-2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he concludes, stand firm in the true grace of God Peace to all of you who are in Christ. One theologian aptly writes, the word grace is really just a shorthand way of speaking about the personal and loving kindness out of which ultimately God gives us himself in Christ. The God of all grace. The believers to whom Peter is writing and believers in every age are going to find themselves in the minority in this world. It's not a friend to grace. So what every church in every age, in every location throughout the world needs is God's peace and strength to endure, to stand firm. Our passage teaches us this morning in a hostile world we're to stand firm in God's stabilizing grace found in Christ. God promises us in this final chapter total care under his absolute sovereign rule. He will not, he cannot fail you. The glory of our future is absolutely certain because God himself is standing behind those promises. This is his grace to you. So endure, work hard, be watchful, do good works, Peter says. 
Charles Spurgeon writes this of finding our strength and satisfaction in the Christian life. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be done by looking unto Jesus. Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles, as well as 17 other children, died on July 23rd, 1742, at the age of 73. Her father, a pastor, had been expelled from his pulpit, along with scores of other ministers in what was called the Great Ejection of 1662 in England. She knew what it was to face opposition and suffering in her life. She knew what it was to set her hope on future rest in God's kingdom. She's buried in the famous London Bunhill Cemetery and her epitaph reads, Ensure and certain hope to rise and claim her mansion in the skies. A Christian here her flesh laid down, the cross exchanging for a crown. One of my favorite songs that we sing here at church is He Will Hold Me Fast. I believe it's the third stanza that says, For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. This is the message of 1 Peter. Stand firm in his abundant, amazing grace for you. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we rejoice again in your word. It calls us to attention. It calls us to look at our king. It calls us to recognize your power and understand the limits of our own. Lord, we want to walk by faith and not sight. We confess that we must stand firm in your grace. And yet this is no passive command. This is no passive call on our lives. It's not as if we can just trust and we don't have to obey We're called to pursue you with all of our might, to be watchful, to be alert. There's very real dangers or there's temptations in our lives, even today, even perhaps in this moment, to minimize you, to look at self instead of looking at Jesus. We need to take a good hard look at the things in this life that are hindering us from looking at him and seeking his glory. And waiting for his coming. Give us grace to respond. Each of us has something to change as we look at this text. Give us wisdom to know how to apply your word to our lives this morning. By your grace. In Jesus name.
Amen.